What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. I'm Peter Neal, host of Conversations from the Pointed Firs. My guest today is Kimberly Ridley, science writer, essayist, and award-winning author, resident of Brooklyn, Maine. Kim's book for children include The Secret Pool and The Secret Bay, both illustrated by Rebecca Ray, Extreme Survivors, Animals That Time Forgot, and published this year a new book of essays and historical renderings of natural things, Wild Design, Nature's Architects. Kim is an elegant writer, teacher, and communicator of her affinity and sense of wonder of things observed in her own backyard in Maine. Kim, welcome to Conversations with the Pointed Furs. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So we usually start with this nosy question uh, Mm -hmm. about your basic identity, who you are, where you came from, how did you find your way to Maine? I love those kinds of questions. I'm a native Mainer. My roots are in York County, where they go back 10 generations. I grew up in Springvale, which is a village in Sanford, on the rural outs, basically on the rural outskirts of a dying mill town. And the house I grew up in was a mile down the road from the house where my father was born. So I had the great fortune of having a free-range childhood. I didn't even know what trespassing was. When we weren't in school, my brother and I spent our days rambling. There was a big old woodlot behind our house. It was probably a mile by two miles square where we were free to roam. Um, There was this wonderful swamp across the road, brooks, pastures, barns. And that really, that connection with the land My family's land, basically, or their roots, really shaped my love of the natural world from a very early age. When I was a kid, my two hangouts, I was either in the woods or the swamps or the brook, or when it was raining, I was in the library. And those two places uh, were very dear to me and I think formed a, a big part of my love of the natural world and science, as well as reading and writing. Was that, a, was that a public library? It was the Springvale Public Library. Isn't yeah, a, still there. It's just the power of libraries as refuge and places of learning. And in a way that we, we tend to forget how powerful they can be, particularly in a small town. Absolutely. It, the library really was my refuge. And, you know, in, in the years, many years since, whenever I used to travel a lot for work and whenever I felt homesick or unsettled, I would find the public library and go and spend some time in the library. Just the books, the smells, the ideas, the piece of that. Yeah. So it was really a big part of my growing up. I always had overdue library finds because I never wanted to let the books go. (laughs) I I love it. The library library is solace. The librarian is mother. Yeah, absolutely. We had Miss Shaw, who was very kind and uh, always found books that uh, would interest me. She knew of my interest in nature somehow. I don't know. Maybe I came in with dirty fingernails or 
muddy sneakers. And uh, it was Miss Shaw who first told me about field guides. I loved wildflowers. I loved in the in the spring, I would go out in the woods and look for mayflowers trailing arbutus, the first flowers of the woods. And then I would look for lady slippers and on through the summer. And Miss Shaw slipped me a copy of the Golden Guide to Wildflowers. That really set me on my way in terms of exploring natural history. And I always wanted to find the most exotic, interesting flower that I had jack in the pulpits or trillium. So I was, I was always out there and I, I got a reputation on my street. There wasn't, there were maybe five or six houses on my street, but several families of kids. And the kids on my street used to call me Mother Nature. Um, it wasn't a compliment because I was always out traipsing around. Um, and I, I guess one of my favorite haunts in the woods behind my parents' house was this beautiful shallow pool. It was crystal clear. It was between two wooded hills. And what was great about that place is it was private. It was private. I could just be there by myself and it was safe. Um, so I'd go up to the pool, I'd look for frog eggs, I'd catch tadpoles, but it was also within earshot. It couldn't be seen from the house, but it was within earshot when it was time for dinner. Um, and that place was just magic to me and eventually um, inspired my first children's book. So I'm so grateful for that experience to just wander around and roam and follow my curiosity, both in place and in language and books. You know, I have a sort of similar experience. I grew up in an urban a city, a big city with a small backyard, and there were hedges that divided the next house from the one next door. And I can remember hiding under the hedges, down in the roots, and being totally invisible with my little soldiers and my figures, my cowboys and my Indians. And I am convinced that that's the moment when my own creative imagination was was kindled in that private space, safe, not dangerous, close enough to home, but free. So did you have other mentors, your parents or anyone else besides Miss Shaw? Yeah, I love, thank you for that story. I, I love that. And it also speaks to, as children are good, good fortune, and I think one thing children really need is undirected time to explore and play on their own. I learned a lot from my father about the plants um, and then the birds. I, I, I did, uh, after a time, we had an old pair of binoculars. They were really heavy and clunky and didn't work very well, but I would often traipse around with the binoculars and try to look for birds. But whenever I'd bring a wildflower home or there'd be a bird in the yard, I would ask my father the name and he knew the names of all the flowers all the birds in our yard. So, you know, wood thrush, um, towhees, bluebirds, orioles. You know, I've, I haven't, I just have been thinking about this. We didn't have many books in the house. We certainly didn't have field guides other than the golden guide that I had from the library. And my father learned all of this, I realized, from his parents, who learned from their parents. He was, they were subsistence farmers. They were outside all the time. So they just absorbed this knowledge and this information about 
their wild neighbors, basically. It was, it was a very natural thing. It wasn't something that they studied in books. So I learned uh, a lot about that place from my father, who was also a passionate gardener. So I was often outside with my dad and peppering him with many, many questions. And then my other mentor wasn't a person, it was a book. I suppose it was a person who I, I never met. He died long before I was born. When I was probably eight or nine years old, my grandparents gave me this book they'd gotten at a yard sale, this big, old, thick, musty, black volume. It was called The Nature Book. The editor was Dallas Lore Sharp. Uh, the Nature Book was, was part of a series, Our Wonder World in 12 volumes. So there were people, handcrafts, etc. I loved the nature book. So, and one of my favorite chapters was called Tramps of Field. And so it was all about, you know, going out for a walk and bringing your notebook and your sturdy walking stick. And then there were accounts of so many of the plants and animals and other things I would see, morning cloak butterflies, different kinds of birds' nests. So I would just pour through that book. I, I always kept it close. I would press. I still have it, and there are still flowers that I've pressed in it. So I consider Mr. Sharp, who uh, he was a theologian and a popular natural history writer in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I consider him one of my first mentors. It does bring me to a question of method. Uh, you yeah. say you gathered and dried and pressed. Was that something that you were taught or did that something just come to you? And how extensive was your sort of early forays into methodology? Sure. I, I'm sure I read about pressing wildflowers in that very book. So I would go out and collect whatever I found, you know, common, common things. I mean, violets, buttercups, purple vetch, on and on, and press them in that book. I would sketch them. I never started a formal, you know, an herbaria per se, but I would just, you know, and then I would go to my golden guides and read about those flowers. I'd look at the range maps, you know, how common is this here? So it just led me into this whole little world of investigation but in terms of creating something formal, no, they're just, they're pressed in there. Maybe I made, you know, little pieces of art or something, but that, that was about the extent of it. So what did the American education do to you? Did it try very hard to suppress this enthusiasm, <laughs> shut you down? Sure. Yeah. And turn, yeah. turn it into something else? Yeah. Well, I was fortunate. So I went to public schools in Springvale and Sanford. And I often did feel trapped in school. I wanted to be outside. I didn't want to be in a classroom. But I also really loved learning. And my favorite subjects were English and reading. So I always read ahead in our textbooks. And as I said, I loved science. And I had a marvelous science teacher in high school, Mr. Gagne, who taught biology and anatomy and physiology. He was funny. He was creative. He was thorough. Introduced us to everything from, you know, genetics to cell division to anatomy and physiology. And he really, his enthusiasm, his integrity, you know, kids know when a teacher is authentic, passionate, smart. And he was all of those things. And he inspired me hugely. Mm -hmm. I actually thought about going into science 
I weirdly thought about medical illustration because I also like to draw or becoming a doctor or a researcher of some kind. But math did me in. I just could not. In the end, I couldn't really handle the math. Um, And the other thing is that I really love to write. I like to write reports. I was a nerdy kid who liked to write book reports. And I like to write poetry. And my, my mother had a funny story. I don't remember this, but she would say, you know, I'd write a report or a book report on who knows what. And I'd show it to her to make sure it was okay. And she'd say, oh, this is very good. And then I would go back and revise it. So I think I just had that kind of writing revision expression bug deep deep in me from a pretty early age. That's a that's such a, a, a privilege to discover an avocation in secondary school that then shapes all your decisions afterwards. And so many of young people are lost because they haven't had that teacher or they haven't had that moment of discovery. And they wander out of high school and even into college and beyond with no understanding of really the joy of learning and communicating what you know. That's Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful experience to have had. Yeah, yeah. I feel lucky. And I think I have to say my both of my parents encouraged my curiosity. They found it amusing. It was kind of a family joke that as soon as I could form a sentence, I started asking questions. So that was encouraged. And it was a source of, I think, amusement, loving and amused by that. Well, I love the idea. You say this somewhere in your introductions about essentially communicating everything that you know you can find in your own backyard. Mm-hmm. By, by walking out. I love the idea of your backyard as a kind of macrocosm of the world. And uh, that's one of the values of nature that isn't particularly well articulated. There've always been certain people who understand that, and there are certain writers who communicate it. Did you read other writers, more modern writers that have moved you? I've, I've read many. I'm a very avid reader of nature writing for adults now and children as well. I love E.O. Wilson and his aunts. I mean, he traveled, obviously he went all over the place, um, but he grew up in Alabama. And, you know, his fascination with nature started in his own backyard and his extraordinary scientific and literary career. You know, many, I read many, many contemporary nature writers now. Another favorite is um, Robert McFarland, who started writing, uh, you know, he wrote uh, The Lost Places, very place-based in his environs. And he wrote one of my favorite children's books in the entire world, The Lost Words. And this speaks to the power of language and inspiration. So this is a little a little bit of a side trip, but I think it wraps around to what we're talking about. So every, I don't know, how, however many years, maybe every 10 or 15 or 20 years, dictionary editors revise the dictionaries. They weed out old obsolete words and replace them with new words. So the editors of the Oxford Junior Dictionary, I think this was sometime in the 1990s or early 2000s, were revising their dictionary. And among the words they took out were otter, dandelion, ivy, uh, lark. They took out so many nature words and replaced them with words like chat room, uh, cyberspace. <laughs> when you think about it, it's like how long have dandelions been around as opposed to cyberspace, right? right. Um, so he wrote this book called The Lost Words in response 
A bunch of writers got together internationally and like, what are we going to do here about, you know, the loss of these nature words? And he wrote this exquisite book called The Lost Words. They look like poems, but he calls them spells. And they're about, you know, there's, you know, about dandelions and otter, bramble. This book, and it speaks to the power of language. This book has taken off. It's sold, I don't know if it's sold millions of copies, but many hundreds of thousands of copies internationally. It's inspired a movement in the UK. There are inspired songs, films, exhibits at the British Natural History Museum. Uh, And he has a second book at now. They're both beautifully illustrated, by the way, by Jackie Morris. So that book, I keep that book on my desk. And that book inspires me hugely. Also, there's a new, newish book by a poet, Amy Nezu, Nezu Huta Katil. I think I can never pronounce her name. It's a long last name. It's called World of Wonders. Same kind of thing. She writes about different organisms in her life and her own. She moved a lot in her life, but she writes about plants and animals she's encountered in her various backyards around the world and how they shaped her. And she wrote she, one of my favorite essays. She wrote a piece called The Soils I Have Eaten. Um, and it's about state state soils. So quite literally place-based connected to the earth. And most certainly, I mean, when I was a kid and still now, E.B. White, Charlotte's Web. I mean, it's it's obviously a novel in fiction, but that, you know, his pig, his barn, he did a ton of research on spiders. So there are many people who inspire me writing about right where we are, right in our place. It's a bit of tension for me because I come from a long line of homebodies. My father lived nearly all of his almost 85 years within a one mile radius. He loved it. I mean, he went to Hawaii with my mother. My mother dragged him to Hawaii and he got on the phone and said, you know, very different here. And so they, they were very, he loved his place. I love to travel, but as I've grown older and over the years, I've lived in Brooklyn, we've lived in Brooklyn 26 years. I'm just falling more and more deeply in love with where I live, literally in my backyard, learning about my neighbors. I was, you know, looking at robins with binoculars the other day and have a whole set of questions about them. Um, So it's a really interesting way for me. It's an interesting, engaging way to live. And I never run out of material. If you've just joined us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM with authors and artists who invoke the spirit of Maine. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Kim Ridley, children's book author and acute observer of the natural world that surrounds us. The genre is interesting because when you look at McFarland or or Annie Dillard uh, Mm. or Barry Lopez, uh, these sort of people who've written these classics Mm -hmm. of nature writing, it always is an amazing amalgam of style that they're Mm -hmm. capable of essentially doing detailed observation and and scientific understanding and rendering in poetry, rendering in emotive language that somehow makes a connection that goes beyond the cerebral. It goes from mind to heart. And that's how we learn things. That's how we really understand things. That aspect of it is real. People understand it, but I don't know if it's fully appreciated as as a technique. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think it. It is actually, and I, it's great. I want to come back to Annie Dillard in just a second. But what you're saying about that writing and you know that sort of nature and bringing together the science and the observation and and the heart, the, the feeling part of it. Terry Tempest William says it. Who's another great and incredible writer of place. Real, yeah. One of the best. Terry Tempest Williams said that stories bypass rhetoric by piercing the heart. Yeah. We are we are creatures of story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, that's how humans learn. I think that's what ultimately inspires us. Uh, and I and I keep I keep Terry's words close. You know, when you think about all the things we're contending with now in the world, we can admonish, scold, rail. Not that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think to really connect, we we connect through story. And I just wanted to, to back up Annie Dillard. Oh, my gosh. So that was one of the most, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, I'm sure for a lot of people, was one of the most, still one of the most powerful books in my reading life. I have um, a first edition on my bookshelf. I came to that book completely unaware. So I wasn't studying it. Someone didn't, nobody told me about it. It was published, I don't know, when I was too young to read it. There was a little local bookstore in Springvale for a while, and I was just browsing. And I just like, I picked it up, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And that was earth shattering for me. You know, and I love what she said. I'm no scientist. I'm just exploring the neighborhood. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, you can you can do this and bring in, you know, all of this Teilhard de Chardin and all of this philosophy and these I'm getting goosebumps, just all of these incredible ideas, starting with right in your own backyard, you know, watching a diving beetle eat a frog or a weasel or whatever it is. That's a that is a life changing book for me. In that book, for me, it was the decomposing frog. Yes, he sits yeah. there watches through the through days the sort of deterioration of yes. this, of this dead animal. I uh, I confess that I had uh, a uh, I fell in love with Annie Dillard. Uh, Who wouldn't? Yeah, exactly. And so one day I heard she was she was teaching at Wesleyan University. I was down on the Connecticut coast, so I called her up on the phone as a stranger. A stalker, perhaps, <laughs> and, and she answered the phone, and I introduced myself, and I invited her to dinner, uh, to come down to dinner with my wife and I, and just to talk, talk. And I guess she didn't have anybody to talk to, so she drove down from from uh, from Wesley and, and and came, and and we chatted way into the night, too late, so that she needed to spend the night, and. Off she went, and I've never seen her since. But it was it was just one of those you know, crazy realizations of 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 an empathy with a stranger realized. Yes, yeah. how um, wonderful! Let's talk about a little bit about your children's books first. There, you have a series: the Secret Pool, the Secret Bay. And I'm very interested in how those came to be and how your relationship with a, a local artist, the wonderful Rebecca Ray, mm-hmm. uh, came to pass and how that collaboration works. How did oh, these books yeah. conceive? Well, you you mentioned the word empathy with Annie Dillard and just and connecting. I and 
I have to say all of my books, so all of the books I write and am writing, emerge from love of place, ecology, other than human beings. Uh, They arise from, my books arise from love and concern. Concern for what's happening to the living world, what often is a consequence of human activity. And one thing I really hope to invite with my readers, especially children, is a sense of empathy. And empathy is an act, ultimately empathy is an act of imagination. So in kind of a deep sense, that's that's the deep place of, of where my books come from and what I'm thinking about. So The Secret Pool is a fun, how that book came about is a, a fun story. I got a master's degree in science journalism from BU, um, ended up freelancing for The Globe and doing mag- writing for magazines, a bunch of editing jobs. But I really wanted to write more about the natural world. I did a little bit of that for The Globe. So years ago, I decided I would pitch some children's book ideas to Tilbury House. Jennifer Bunting was the editor at the time. And I pitched her maybe five or six ideas. And one of them was on vernal pools, which are uh, actually this, my childhood haunt is is a vernal pool. They're temporary pools that form in springtime in the woods from rain and melted snow. The precise or the literal inspiration for that book came from work I did, communications work I did with scientists at UMaine, the George Mitchell Center Sustainability Solutions Initiative. And I met a researcher, a wonderful scientist there, Aram Calhoun, who is an expert in vernal pools. So I did a little bit of work with her and I, I knew they were, so these are places that uh, certain creatures, fro- wood frogs, spotted salamanders, and fairy shrimp depend on to complete their life cycles. They lay their eggs there. I learned from Aram that vernal pools help feed the entire forest by turning dead leaves, fallen leaves, and rainwater or melted snow into life. Vernal pools through the food web, the magic of the food web, turn dead leaves and rainwater into life, into insects, into amphibians, into mammals, and on up the food web. And they're essential for the health of a forest. At the same time, as I was percolating this idea, uh, former governor Paula Page was considering rolling back protections on vernal pools. If a vernal pool is significant, if there's enough egg masses or it has fairy shrimp in it, shrimp in it, there are certain regulations that have to be followed around development because they are inter- integral to healthy ecosystems. And at the time, the governor was going to roll back, thinking about rolling back these regulations. And I thought, wow, I really want to get kids excited about vernal pools. So I, I had an ulterior motive there. Not only to share the wonder, but I was thinking, you know, I want children to know about these amazing places. And at the time, there was a program in Maine Every year, a book was chosen to be read to every kindergarten class in Maine by the state's first lady. So my fantasy is that I would write a book about vernal pools and Mrs. LePage would read it (laughs) to all the kindergartners around the state. (laughs) Well, that particular piece didn't come to happen. But Jennifer Bunting loved the idea of a children's book about vernal pools. So I um, wrote a proposal, wrote a first draft, um, and signed a contract. Now, it took a lot of work and a lot of tries to get the book just right. 
One of the big decisions I had to make about the book, well, I knew first of all that I didn't want anything to get between my readers and the pool. I mean, it's a book, it is a construct, it's a, you know, it's mediated, it's created, but I didn't want it to be the kind of book where, you know, our grandmotherly or grandfatherly figure is explaining about vernal pools to a child. I didn't want that in the, I wanted children to have direct contact with the pool in the book. And I, then I decided to tell the story from the pool's perspective. So I used personification. I spent many hours sitting by vernal pools, just trying to imagine what a vernal pool would be like or sound like. That's a precarious business because there's personification, but I, I didn't want to anthropomorphize. So I didn't want it to be like a cute little pool talking about it, but I wanted it to have some kind of personality. And I wanted my pool, the pool to have an attitude because one of the things I love about these tiny wetlands, I mean, they can be smaller, they can be the size of a bathtub. They're tiny, but they're important and powerful to the health, as I said, of, of forests. So I decided I would write in a lyrical voice and let the pool tell its own story. And the pool does have a little bit of an attitude. And then you think about the shape of a story. So in a classic fairy tale or a classic myth, there's a main character who has an obstacle to overcome and is somehow changed. Another kind of story is a cycle of life or a character has a task to complete. So that's the pattern I chose, a vernal pool telling the story of its life throughout the year. And that was, that took me at least a dozen revisions uh, to nail it down. And I can honestly say, you know, a dozen revisions isn't very many. One of the great things about writing children's books is it's an incredible opportunity to practice the craft of writing. You have very tight parameters. 750 words is considered long for a children's book now. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to convey these, and I love writing nonfiction and about nature. So you have to convey complex ideas in an engaging, distilled way. So using a tool of poetry, using compression. So anyway, I got the pools telling its story. It was working. It finally got that in place. And then I realized there's so much more to tell and share about these incredible places. So I came up with the idea of using sidebars, which explain a bunch of facts about the pooled and their creatures. So as I was writing the book, I was, mm, I was pretty well into it. And it was time to find an illustrator. And what people might not know is when you write a children's book and work with a publisher, the publisher picks the illustrator. So Jennifer called me one day and she said, well, I have an illustrator. Do you know Rebecca Ray? And I said, do I know Rebecca Ray? So we've been, we'd been friends for a long time. I was ecstatic. And so the way the process worked is I wrote the manuscript and then Rebecca illustrated it. And we, we went back and forth a little bit, but those processes are pretty separate. In many cases of children's books, the authors and illustrators never meet. So I feel incredibly lucky to work with Rebecca. And one of the great gifts of working with her, I mean, obviously, she's a talented artist. Uh, she's a lovely and rare human being. But the other really special thing about Rebecca is she is a meticulous researcher. So she learns 
everything about the organism, the ecosystem. You know, I learned from her, you know, how many back toes a spotted salamander has and, and on and on. So I feel so fortunate in that collaboration, uh, her incredible care and her interpretation of the animals in the place. Re- Rebecca Ray, who is everyone's friend and who has is about 120% empathy. Yes. It's just all empathy all the time. Yes. You know what? Uh, I'm really interested in the device because I have grandchildren. You read the grandchildren, the, the children's book, and you get the pictures. That's a that's a sort of the baseline level. Mm-hmm. And then there's the text and the text could be, can be cute and animated and all the rest. It has its rhyming. And that's what the typical book is. Yours has all those things, but then it, I want to go to the sidebars because the sidebars are for the reader, not the listener. So when I have this book, I, I'm holding the secret bay on estuaries, uh, successor volume in my hand right now. And I look at it, I can imagine sitting with young Stuart on my lap, and we're looking right now on, uh, at the turtle uh, of the salt marsh, and we're talking about the turtle. I've read him the verse, but then he says, but what's that? And what does that mean? And what happens here? And I don't know. So I have the sidebar. It's a very clever tool to make a grandparent seem smart. <laughs> I love that. I mean, my other surreptitious mission, and I'm sure this is true of every children's book writer, we're writing books for children and their grownups, whether it's a grandparent, a teacher, parents. And we want to, I want to delight and open, you know, adults' eyes to the wonder around us as well. And I also want my books to grow with children so they can, you know, read these, these sidebars and back matter on their own as they get older. So let's move on a little bit here to another one I have uh, here, The Extreme Survivors, Animals That Time Forgot. And it's a a series on how nature works. It's a different kind of book. It's clearly simple in that it distills down a lot of basic information about a very large number of curious animals uh, historically. How was this book conceived? Was it meant to be a a primer in some way or way? Wait a yeah. yeah, kind of. It's interesting. One of, you know, one of the other things I love about writing is, you know, following my curiosity, one idea, one book leads to the next. So Extreme Survivors was hatched when I was talking with my editor at Tilbury House one day, John, uh, who's now John Eaton. And we were just talking about horseshoe crabs. The Secret Bay has come out and we're just kind of having like this horseshoe crab moment. And I said, you know, there's so many other, they're so ancient and there's so, but there's so many other animals who, you know, basically look as they have for many millions of years. And I said, Gee, you know, I'd love to find out for you and put a book together. He said, all right, see what you can find. And in fact, there are so many, there are scores, if not hundreds of other creatures. The hard part was winnowing it down to 10. The hard part of writing children's books is always winnowing it down and and the distillation, both of subject focus and then the language. And this book, what I decided with this book is I wanted, number one, there's a myth. There's a myth that I wanted to challenge. So um, there's horseshoe crabs, chambered nautilus, tadpole shrimp, all of these uh, goblin sharks, organisms that are at least 100 million years old, they survived the cataclysms that wiped out the dinosaurs. 
these organisms are often called living fossils because they still, they look like they're fossils or they look primitive or prehistoric. But in fact, there's no such thing as a living fossil. And I, you know, this is something that's really fun. I do a lot of work in the schools and I love to teach with kids in my science writing workshops and myth busting. So the horseshoe crab, for instance, still looks like it's, you know, they found a scientist, archaeologist found a fossil that's 450 million years old. So it still is the same body plan, you know, that, that shape and that spiky tail. But through evolution, there are lots of changes quote unquote, under the hood. So with kids, I compare it to a VW. Everybody knows what a Volkswagen Beetle is. So a Beetle from the outside, VW Beetle still looks, has the same shape it had 50 plus years ago, but there have been improvements under the hood, you know, automatic windows, air conditioning, power brakes, et cetera. And it's the same with these ancient organisms. They might look the same, but through evolution, they actually are different. They've adapted to changing environments, which is a big piece of what has helped them survive. And one of my favorite critters in the book, I like to surprise kids and my readers, is uh, the water bear, the tardigrade, which is actually microscopic. Um, and they're super tough. They look like gummy bears with extra legs and live in moss everywhere. Tardigrades haven't been found in the fossil record probably because they're so tiny, but it's D through DNA, evidence scientists have discovered that they're over 400 million years old. Yeah. So that book was, you know, maybe for slightly older kids, but young kids like it too. I just did a school program with the Deer Isle Stonington Elementary School with extreme survivors with the wonderful island readers and writers. And we use this book as a springboard to, uh, to teach kids about science writing and research and they are, uh, the project for them is writing a field guide to their school nature trail. So again, right in your own backyard are all of these amazing organisms. Uh, it's interesting in this book compared to, let's just talk about the illustration mm -hmm. for a minute. You have the children's book illustrator, and now you have microphotography. Mm -hmm. And so these animals, completely blown up and out of scale, it's a stunning surprise. I think the shock of recognition in these things is amazing when you, you realize that these are microscopic creatures, but they might as well be giant creatures, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and they have personalities. They have they have all sorts of brilliant adaptations that we, we don't have any idea how that can happen and how it continues to happen. Yes, absolutely. And that's really, I think that I'm so glad you brought that up. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs here on WERU-FM Blue Hill, Maine, and streaming live on WERU.org. I'm speaking today with Kim Ridley about the wonders of nature, the hidden design to be discovered in our landscape and waterways of Maine. brought back something I remembered about writing The Secret Pool that's also in Extreme Survivors and, and all of the books I write about the natural world. One of the my editors at Tilbury House, when I started The Secret Pool, gave me this fantastic term, beinghood, you know, like personhood, yeah. only beinghood. And the idea is to convey the beinghood, uh, the, the dignity, the sentience, the, you know, the consciousness, of each organism, uh, the agency of each organism, living, 
it's life. And I really wanted that to come through in extreme survivors. These creatures aren't soft and cuddly and furry. They're very other. And I really wanted to convey. So I wrote that book. Each each um, piece is, starts with, you know, kind of some kind of drama that these creatures are experiencing in their environment. And I really want to convey that sense of beinghood about each organism. Um, that continues in the books I'm writing I'm writing now about uh, one of them has um, insects in it, caddisfly larvae. So it's that each living being has has its dignity, has its purpose, has its life, even if it's, you know, we don't understand it yet. And that's one of the reasons I love writing about science, particularly natural history and biology, where peel it, we can peel back some of the layers of human arrogance and obtuseness. Well, let's, we're going to run out of time. It's a wonderful conversation. I want to talk about your latest book published this year, mm-hmm. Wild Design, Nature's Architects. I devoured mm-hmm. this book. Oh. I really enjoyed it for two reasons. One, there you have these very lovely essays and sort of explanatory, but with a very personal, uh, sometimes poetic touch, uh, sort of evoking the invitation to wonder that you outline in your in your introduction. Here, the illustrations are 19th century uh, scientific drawings and watercolors and, and engravings, which are some of the most beautiful art on earth. I mean, the idea that the, the artist is rendering a creation, a natural creation that is so complicated and so beautiful that the only way we can understand it is, is to abstract it. We could never make these things ourselves. Talk a little bit about this book and how it came from, uh, and then let's let's talk about it in in the context of uh, the biomimicry movement. Hmm, sure, yeah. So actually, this book, uh, Wild Design, started with um, I was going to pitch. This is um, Princeton Architectural Press, and I was all set to pitch them a book, a children's book about biomimicry. So biomimicry is an emerging interdisciplinary field where scientists from many disciplines look to nature to solve human problems, design challenges. There are many, many examples of this. A well-known example is using a kingfisher's beak. So uh, there are these high-speed trains in Japan when they first were put in use would create sonic booms when they went through tunnels and disrupt neighborhoods. So the scientists and engineers went back and redesigned the front of the train to mimic the aerodynamic shape of a kingfisher's beak and eliminate the sonic boom. And there are thousands of examples of this. So I you know, talked with an editor there, kind of pitched that idea, and she wanted to take a step back and just talk about design in nature more broadly, kind of an introduction to design in the natural world, which is a huge topic, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's an encyclopedia. It's like libraries. And there was a catch. I had 10,000 words to do it in. <laughs> wow. And um, and about 75 illustrations. But I love a challenge, um, obviously. So I started making lists. We talked about trees and how the wind shapes hedges. And we we're thinking like, well, how does the how does that actually happen? You know, the top of a mountain, these twisty trees. Well, there's this process, I love this word, thigmomorphogenesis, which means shape influenced by touch. So plants and trees um, move, change shape in response to touch, pressure from wind, Venus flytraps when uh, they, they catch insects. And then I started thinking about, well, there are seashells and how do seashells not shatter in the ocean? They're made out of this crumbly 
substance, mostly calcium carbonate. What about spider silk? How do bees make their beehives? Birds nests, I'm a birder. So I made a list and it eventually evolved into eight essays, eight organisms. And one of my favorite questions I asked myself, curiosity, so who are nature's tiniest architects? Like what are the smallest, like that create a structure? It's diet plankton, diatoms and radiolarians, which make these intricate, exquisite glass houses out of silica. Some of them look like chandeliers, the Eiffel Tower, these beautiful structures. And so I was, I just got rolling. I did so much research for so few words, but I love doing the research. And then when it came to illustrating the book, I knew I didn't want photography. I just didn't want that. And I kept coming back to those old, beautiful natural history illustrations. When I lived in Cambridge, I would spend a lot of time at the Peabody Museum at Harvard in the winter, just looking at those collections and loving everything in there. So, and then the editor said, well, how about if we hire an illustrator? And I said, you know, let's try natural history illustrations because they're they're wondrous in and of themselves, like you said. And so we found this incredible resource, the Biodiversity Heritage Library, which has many hundreds of thousands of old illustrations available online. And I had a wonderful research assistant, Misha Semenov, do the initial research. And we went through, gosh, for those 75 illustrations, we went through probably at least 500 illustrations. And that's a whole other, you know, that's a whole other book. But you were mentioning wonder. And the first, the introductory essay to wild design is an invitation to wonder. And what I mean by wonder, you know, I think we tend to conflate wonder with naivete, childlike wonder. But I really think that wonder is a survival skill. It's about humility. It's about observing. And I come back to my heroine, Rachel Carson, who I've loved since I was a child. She wanted to write a book about wonder after she wrote Silent Spring. Sally didn't live to do that. But she had an essay, Teach Your Child to Wonder. And Rachel Carson said if she had a wish for every child, it would be that they would be granted a sense of wonder so indestructible that it would last throughout lifetime uh, as an antidote to later disenchantments and obsession with things that are artificial. So I think that wonder has this enormous power and is very undervalued. So I want all of my work to invite people in whatever way to rekindle their sense of wonder. And then the last essay in Wild Design, I call A Living Library. And it's about, it's about back to biomimicry, the natural, you know, the other than human world, the living, the rest of the living world is a library, how many billions of years of evolution. And we have a lot to learn, but we are burning down the library. I don't have a solution for this, but what I invite readers to do is go out, take a look around something with your kids or on your own. And I do this all the time learn about it, you know, learn about seed pods, learn about bird's nests, and just stop and pause, turn off your device, devices. And I tell myself this every day, by the way, and then share what you learn with somebody else. And this is what I tell kids. I do school visits all over the state. I've worked in hundreds of classrooms. And I always uh, invite children to share one new thing that you learned with someone at home. And this is how we change the world. This is how we wake up to this incredible place we live. I mean, the only real, you know, the only livable real estate for many light years around, right? Mm, wow. Yeah. You know, I look at these illustrations and I envy you the opportunity to sit in that library with 500 of these things, <laughs> pick 75, 
you know, they're delicate, they're fragile, they're gorgeous. But what they really are is a moment of connection between you and another enthusiast, another mm -hmm. person who observed a hundred years ago and sat down and did what you did in your backyard pool, observed, collected, pressed, described, illustrated. And that community of, of observation is a kind of perverse, insidious, uh, almost political movement when you think about it, that if we had a whole legions of people who were armed with those skills and the knowledge derived therefrom, we would treat the world differently. Absolutely. It's totally subversive and joyful. What's next? What's next? Well, I have two, two new kids' books coming out. The next one is The Secret Stream, which is about stream ecology. So it's a headwater stream telling its own story and all the extraordinary organisms that live in it, uh, including caddisfly larvae, one of my current obsessions. And then I have another children's book coming out next year called Oyster Catcher Island. That's about uh, based on real science, uh, working with an ornithologist. It's about a year in the life of a family of these gorgeous birds, American oyster catchers, that live in a very fragile environment. So it's talking about the environment, how to take care of it through the lives of these birds. And then I've been thinking more deeply about, um, I also love essays um, and having a lot of conversations with nature writers lately about how do we write about nature at this point in time with the climate crisis, with everything that's happening. We have a lot of conversations about how do we open readers' hearts without breaking them mm. um, completely. So that that's something I'm thinking a lot about, and I'm working on an essay collection. It's been in the works for years. Some of them have been published that interweaves personal history and natural history to explore the relationship between grief uh, and witnessing and wonder. So that's that's the other thing I have cooking right now. That's, that's an anthology of other people's writings? Nope, this is my own. That's what I want to read. Oh. I want to read the culmination of all this experience because we need these kinds of voices. And we are many of the voices that we've known and loved and appreciated are aging out. And uh, their works are classics, they're in the canon but they're in danger of losing their vitality. And so you have to keep the, the, the message alive. Have you thought about any other art form other than just words? Uh, words, are, words are it for me. Words, and if you, I mean, if you can call teaching, and oh, I think teaching is an art. Sure. I love to teach. So I do a lot of teaching of writing in the classroom with elementary kids and teaching nature writing on occasion. Um, I did a session at um, Monson Arts a couple years ago. But words words are it for me. Words and, words and teaching. Yeah. I am the same, but I've come to understand the power of visualization. Mm -hmm. And these illustrations are just one level of, of that. They're frozen in time. Mm -hmm. They don't move. They are not animated. Mm -hmm. Therefore, their vitality is restricted. Mm -hmm. And I've always wondered, um, I did a little film once on called Life in a Drop. And it Ooh. took one drop of water 
And it simply was an essay written on what you can see in terms of not only the, the specific creatures that are there, but their interactions and then their, abs- their abstract relationships. And, you know, and you're looking at, you're, you're looking at a Paul Clay drawing. Oh, yeah. moment, right? You're looking wow. at a scientific illustration or a mic- microscopic photograph, but you're also looking at a, at a Paul Clay. And that kind of movement and abstraction of the ideas through visualization and words visualize is attractive uh, to me. And I, I wonder how, how, have you ever thought about that in terms of a format that's not so static and packaged and conventional or Ooh. traditional as a book? Well, you're planting a seed, certainly. And um, thank you. And a friend, uh, actually, a friend just gave me a camera that does that makes little videos in the iPhone. I do, you know, I make, that's interesting that you say that. I do make little films of impressions of things I see. So thanks for planting that seed. Anything else you'd like to add? Any admonitions, exhortations? Uh, well, exhortations, uh, gratitude. This is a wonderful conversation. I've had a great time talking with you, and thank you. Well, it's to me, it, when, one of the instruments ha- going on here is, is reciprocity. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. I, you, people don't understand that authors give, and reading is an act of reciprocity, but actually having the privilege to talk to the author is the best reciprocity of all. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kim. My pleasure. Thank you. My guest today has been Kimberly Ridley, science writer, essayist, and award-winning author, resident of Brooklyn, Maine. Kim's book for children include The Secret Pool and The Secret Bay, both illustrated by Rebecca Ray, Extreme Survivors, Animals That Time Forgot, and published this year a new book of essays and historical renderings of natural things, Wild Design, Nature's Architects. My guest next month will be Gretchen Legler, the author of Woods Queer, Crafting a Sustainable Rural Life, published by the University of Texas at Austin Press, an evocative examination of a back-to-the-land experience in Maine with her partner, Ruth Hill. Gretchen's previous publications include An Intimate Portrait of Life at McMurdo Station, Antarctica, and All the Powerful Invisible Things, a sportswoman's notebook. Her work has received two Pushcart Press prizes, and her essays have appeared in Orion, the Georgia Review, and other magazines and journals. She is a professor of creative writing at the University of Maine, Farmington, and recently received a divinity degree from the Harvard Divinity School. It will be another lively conversation from Among the Pointed Furs. Sarah Orne Jewett published her American classic, The Country of the Pointed Furs, in 1896, and it has remained a quiet evocation of the best of Maine. In a special edition published by Simon & Schuster, It is described as follows. It tells the story spanning three months' time in the life of a small coastal town called Dunnett Landing in 19th century Maine. A lone female visitor arrives and finds logic with the widowed Mrs. Todd, the town herbalist, who introduces the visitor to many of the town's inhabitants. The visitor's impressions of the people she meets start out simply, and then almost invisibly they crescendo into a deep, intense human portrait. When I read this book, I am moved by the wisdom hidden in the simplicity of the story, 
the portraits of the people, the likes of whom are today my friends and neighbors, known and unknown. For Jewett, the place described is a best scape for living, in nature, at work, for community. It is a place to see, hear, smell, taste, feel, love, and celebrate the best of what we call home. At the end, Jewett writes, near the woods, we could walk along to the highest point. There above the circle of pointed firs, we could look down over all the island and could see the ocean that circled this and a hundred other bits of island ground, the mainland shore and all the horizons. It gave a sudden sense of space, for nothing stopped the eye or hedged one in, that sense of liberty and space and time which great prospects always give. What a perfect definition of the spirit of Maine. Please support our authors and artists, visit our galleries and independent bookstores, and give thanks for the natural beauty, security, and peace all around us. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal. You've been tuned in to Conversations from the Pointed Furs, Elite's Island Books audio project, produced by Trisha Badger. Theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music. Hosted by Peter Neal. Visit pointedfurs.org for more information and find us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.